You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Transmission authorization code Delta 964 Zulu Bravo. I am David, son of the late Peter Wayland, your company's founder. This primordial ooze ripe with advanced nanoparticles. It is essentially a form of radical AI that generates a unique reaction to every genome it encounters. I finally found my wolf, but I have still one thing left to perfect. We've picked up a distress signal. I've been marooned here. Is it safe? Perfectly safe. Let's kill this thing. Evening comfort at these digital stores. Please relax whilst we recalibrate for your configuration. I have a feeling this is not going to be relaxing. Necessary to be strapped in? Is it normal to be scared? Oh, fuck you! Are you experiencing feelings of fear? Feel. These are human insecurities. Ash, can you see this? Yes, I can. I've never seen anything like it. Let's get the hell out of here. Wait a minute, this movement. I've lost the signal. Oh, God, it's moving right towards you. It's got to be around there. Dallas? Hi everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to be talking about Alien Covenant, specifically the DVD release or Blu-ray, or 4K, depending on what you have. Unfortunately, it's not in 3D, because the film was not in 3D to begin with. They parted from the previous Prometheus 3D version to now this film being released in a non-3D fashion, and therefore the home video release not having a 3D version. But one of the best things that I remember were that was announced ahead of time, and this is something that's happened before, is all the deleted scenes. And this is something that I've been waiting for for a while now because you do know when you have a Ridley Scott film, especially in the Alien franchise, like they did with Prometheus, that there were going to be quite a number of scenes that hopefully we were able to, you know, view in a uh, in a deleted scene chapter on some kind of bonus disc or something like that. And that is exactly what they've given us. We have a ton of deleted scenes similar to the Prometheus uh, release. And... Not only do we have that, but we also have some bonus material that is even more interesting than the deleted scenes, and we're going to talk about all that. We're going to also talk about the future of the franchise, where it stands right now, where it was supposed to be going, where we thought it was going to be going at one point, you know, what the plans look like, you know, directly from what the studio seems to be leaking out as far as information goes, and we will go into my own predictions based on all the information I've been gathering all over the place in terms of what could happen next we kind of know there is going to be a next one i think i hope (laughs) and you know i I do have a pretty clear idea i think of what direction they want to go you know but you never know they could always surprise us with what happens next you know as you guys probably know already based on the viewing of the just the film itself you know i was very happy with the uh 
outcome of Covenant in terms of uh, wh- where the, the story took us this time. And while looking at all these deleted scenes and even reading the novel, you know, you'll hear about how, you know, it, it seems to be heading in a good direction as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, getting our hands on this current Blu-ray version is really, really good as far as the bonus material. You know, that is the stuff that I live for, especially on films like this. Then later on the show, we are going to continue with a segment we started a couple weeks ago having to do with posters. I have two more posters this time that we're going to go over. Because originally I was doing them only once a month, I was kind of like putting up a new poster every month. And then I realized... I have way too many posters here, and I do want to be able to enjoy these other posters that I have. So I'm up to now two posters a month. I've actually been able to put up two posters in my office that basically every two weeks I change one. So right now we are going to go over my current pair, which is The Thing, the original John Carpenter's The Thing, and the re-release of The Empire Strikes Back, back in 1981. So we're going to talk about the posters, we're going to talk a little bit, as usual, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll weave in and out about the movies and some of the uh, background material having to do with how these posters were uh, designed and so forth and so forth. So let's get started with Alien Covenant, Blu-ray, deleted scenes, and bonus material. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> Oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. Today we're going to return to a movie we recently watched, Alien Covenant. The reason why we're returning to it is because, as usual, we absolutely love the Alien franchise. Especially anything... Aliens or before, and the modern ones. No big mystery that I'm not a big fan of what followed Aliens. But these new Ridley Scott versions, prequels really, I really managed to enjoy. And similar to what happened with Prometheus, whereby once the DVD home version uh, was released, you know, we were able to see a lot more stuff. You know, not all of our questions were answered, but we were giving a peek at a whole bunch of new stuff that really helped, you know, to kind of wrap your mind around what was happening at the time. Well, similar to that, now we have Alien Covenant and the home video version release, which included a pretty nice big chunk of deleted scenes and additional bonus material. So I figure we uh, pick it up at the deleted scenes, Similar to what's been done in the past, you know, this isn't a director's cut. Ridley Scott seems to prefer to just add his extra scenes at the end. And a lot of these deleted scenes, it's funny because as I'm watching them, I'm recognizing them not so much from the movie, obviously because they weren't in the movie, but because of the novel, the the movie tie-in novelization. This particular one was penned by Alan Dean Foster, who's super famous movie tie-in writer. You know, he's a writer on his own accord, but I probably read so many of his books, not even at the time realizing it was his, but he seems to be like the go-to guy when it comes to movie novelizations. And in the last year or so, I've been collecting a lot of movie novelizations of not only current movies, but older movies that I've seen in the past uh, that I wanted to take a second look at in the novelization form, because a lot of times you do end up finding a lot of stuff. In this particular case, with the novelization, there were a lot of differences. And I would like to think that a majority of those differences were because of the script, the particular draft that he was working from, you know, in order to put this novelization together. And it seems to coincide. A lot of the things that we're seeing here on these deleted scene clips with some of these additional scenes that he had. So that's kind of interesting. The DVD that was released, you know, as usual, you have your DVD, you have your Blu-ray. You don't have a 3D version because the film was not in 3D. But you also have a 4K version, which is the latest and greatest format out there right now, uh, which, you know, I do not 
own a 4K set or player yet. However, I am starting to go in that direction when it comes to purchasing Blu-rays. Because I prefer the 3D versions, if there is a version that includes 3D and 4K, I would get that. If there is no 3D version, I will get the one that includes the 4K and the Blu-ray, you know, together, which they kind of seem to be pairing those up, I guess, as a way of transitioning people from one format to the other. Now, unfortunately, they are, I believe, charging a little extra for the 4K. There might be a three or four more dollars, you know, per disc. But I guess that's what you get, you know, when you want new technology, you got to pay a little extra. But anyway, let's start going over some of these deleted scenes. There's a total of 12 deleted scenes in this disc. The first one is called Prologue Extended. And this is basically the prologue in the beginning of the film between David and Waylon, where Waylon, you know, is welcoming <laughs> David into the world, more or less. And David starts to ask questions right away that Waylon is becoming a little upset i think about the kind of questions that david is asking and the the conclusions that david is coming away with in terms of you know the fact that he is more powerful and more smart and more everything than a human being including his own creator and he is going to outlive his creator and Waylon is getting annoyed at those kind of conclusions that he's coming up with so there is a, a little more of the back and forth between those two they only trimmed it by a little bit and it is called an extended scene so it is pretty much the same scene except that they do kind of throw these jabs at each other a little more during the scene second one is called Walter in the Greenhouse now this is a scene that yes I do remember just like the uh, opening prologue in the novel, they do go through this uh, sequence where before the ship is hit by that pulse, solar flare, whatever the heck it is, neutrino, Walter is at the uh, greenhouse area of the ship and they have a hydroponics kind of area where while he's taking care of the plants and watering them or whatever the heck he's doing to them, he's whistling to him and mother, the computer reminds him or tells him that, hey, you know, this is not, uh, you know, the plants, it's a myth that plants react to music. And he kind of tells mother that, no, it's she's not doing it for the plants. So that gives you an early kind of warning, I guess, to the fact that Walter is a little bit outside of his normal programming. He is doing something that would be considered to be irrational, almost human-like. But I guess it was an early manner, you know, in terms of them wanting to trim things out. I get it. You trim to make shorter. So this was also a way of not tipping your hand that Walter is having somewhat of the little inklings of independency that normally his model would not have. The third deleted scene is Orem and Daniels extended. And this is after Daniels loses her husband and she's in shock and Orem kind of tells her, you know, why don't you take some time off and go, you know, go to your room and kind of cry it out. And it kind of builds on the fact that Orem is just such a bad leader. And... <laughs> He tells her probably the worst thing he could tell her, you know, under the state she's in. And again, this is also, I do remember this scene from the book, but it was a little a little trimming, you know, and it kind of would have built a little more the the dislike that um, Daniels has for Orem. And it shows the audience how just not leadership material that Orem really is. That scene is quickly followed by another scene, which is the fourth deleted scene, of Walter visiting Daniels, you know, in her room. He visits her because he knows that she's not working. She was told to kind of take some time off. And he brings her pot, basically, to kind of, uh, you know, I guess it would be the equivalent of bringing her a, a bottle of booze, let's say, for example. In this case, it's different. They use pot because... Apparently, it's something that he was able to grow in the garden. And it does kind of make sense in a way, well, if you're not going to show the garden, you're not going to show the pot because then it would be like, well, where'd that come from? Was that like something people brought it to the, you know, in the ship, part of their personal belongings? But no, this turns out to be something that Walter was growing in the first place. 
Fifth scene is Daniel's uh, bedroom flashback. This is a scene that was supposed to take place, I guess, as she is alone in her room thinking about her husband. We do get a flashback of her and her husband in what appears to be an apartment building. It's snowing outside, and he's talking to her about the cabin that he wants to build. And he was like, well, maybe I should change the window to here, or maybe I should leave it where it is. And they have this little sweet back and forth, you know, kind of establishing a little more of their relationship. This was completely removed. Then you have a longer version of what becomes Jacob's funeral, and that is instead of everybody already being there, which is how he jumped into the scene in the in the movie, we see how first Walter shows up and she kind of tells him how much she appreciates the fact that you know he's he's there for her. And then little by little the rest of the crew arrives and they kind of begin the memorial service that we then do see during the film. Lewitz falls. Once they're down in the planet and the first guy that gets infected, basically, we do get a couple of extra shots of him acting sick. You know, the symptoms that he's getting where he can barely walk at some point and he's trying to clear his head and that sort of thing. You know, as they're running through the wheat field, trying to head back to the ship, you know, before she has to kind of start carrying him more or less. You know, we get a little more of that, which, yeah, no big deal. Crossing the Plaza. This is number eight in the deleted scenes. This is basically an extended version of the scene where the survivors of the first attack, following David back to the hideout, I guess, they're crossing that whole plaza at night with all of the dead, you know, engineer race, you know, all petrified all over the uh, all over the ground. And we do get a, a little more of them running and running and running. And then you get a, you do get this one shot of them being up high and kind of looking down. And they throw like a flare down into this area to see what's down there. And you do see the silhouettes of some other engineer ships down there too. So that's interesting. While in there, we get the ninth scene, which is Daniel's Thanks Walter. This is in response to the attack that the neomorph at one point goes after daniels you know when they're out you know outside and walter is able to deflect the attack but in the process loses his hand his robotic hand fighting the creature so here's a scene where she formally thanks him and he reminds her that he's here to serve this is a phrase that he repeats a number of times and uh, later on he tries to explain to david what that means you know completely different mentality between david and walter the 10th scene is rosenthal's prayer this takes place right before her attack where she's kind of relaxing a little bit kind of washing herself up and she decides to pray you know i believe in hebrew because she's jewish she's got a jewish star of david ironically you have david and you have david and them and then you have the michelangelo's david in the beginning but you do get that scene of her praying you know openly right as the attack is about to commence so that's an interesting little tidbit there the 11th scene is walter reports back now this is a scene where after walter has one of his conversations with David and he lets Daniels and Orem know that something's not right with David. He's got some wacky stuff going on. He said, it, you know, it could be an unstable mental type of situation. Obviously he's a robot, but you know, it, there's something wrong with him. And he says it could be because of a lack of maintenance because of all these years that have passed without, you know, properly <laughs> being a service that he might've gone off the rails pretty much and uh, yeah no kidding <laughs> again these are scenes that so far most of these scenes we do get in the novel the final scene that we get is the stairs to the egg room again another novel scene and this is david leading orem down the stairs to where the eggs are being kept and as they're about to enter the room from the novel the, apparently there's a horrendous stench coming from down there from those eggs being kept down there and David grabs off the off the wall. There's like a little pad thing, and, and there's some cream or something with lavender smell, and he kind of puts that in his nose, and he tells Orm to do the same thing because it's supposed to kind of keep the smell away, and this way he doesn't react so bad to the smell that's coming from down there. So, again, another little, little miniature, minuscule scene that really doesn't matter much, but, you know, it is something different. Now, there were a lot of also many, many scenes that you do get little 
snippets here or there during the trailers that were not used in the movie. And we can't really go into too much detail on those because there's just so many of them and it's just outrageous. You do get the feeling from reading the novel, from watching the movie, from watching these deleted scenes, from listening to the to the interviews is that, you know, they shot a lot of different stuff. And something tells me Ridley Scott at the last minute decided to make some changes in terms of there were some reshoots and there were some deletions here or there that were made that eventually, you know, he had to, you know, make up for that do not coincide with some of the things that we would read, you know, during the novel, for example. Now, the DVD has many extras, as most of them do in terms of bonus features, and the deleter scenes are the the main things that I that I really wanted to see because, they, you know, it adds up to quite a bit. I, I believe they were saying it's something like 18 minutes of deleted material when you add it all up, which is a nice chunk of... Uh, chunk of material you do have from before which you know included here i believe you have the crossing prologue which we talked about you know before the movie came out or around the time the movie came out which is that whole sequence of kind of like a flashbacky kind of sequence of shaw and david you know traveling alone and her repairing david and and david uh, eventually releasing (laughs) all the canisters to the uh, engineer world you have the Last Supper scene uh, that is slightly, slightly extended also. You know, the whole crew getting ready to go into into uh, into sleep and everybody, you know, kind of uh, having like one final toast, you know, before they do that. But what is super, super interesting is something that I was not expecting. And, you know, that's because I wasn't looking at what was coming. But this is something completely new, uh, in a way, to this DVD. And what I'm talking about is two additional productions that were shot now again i'm not talking about the testimonials the individual testimonials that they did you know the promotional testimonials or the the walter being created viral video that kind of stuff i'm not talking about that i'm talking about two more videos the first one it is referred to as the phobos video i think that's like a moon around mars or something like that but anyway this is a video that was teased i believe during maybe san diego comic-con or some event you know, letting people know that this is coming. And it may also be associated with a video game, but this is the real actors used, I believe, Fassbender and uh, McBride and the guy that plays uh, Lope. Uh, Rosenthal, I think, is the other one, and Daniels. And what they're doing is, it's almost like security footage, footage, if you will, or, or medical footage, if you will, of them being tested by Wailing yutani They sit on a chair, they're strapped to a chair, and they're exposed to frightful images to see what kind of reaction they get and this would determine i guess you know what are their levels of stress in terms of you know how stressed do they get depending on what frightening images they're shown so you go through this video where different questions are being asked and different video images are shown and some of those images are really like disturbingly graphic (laughs) violent images and it's the character's reaction to them you know uh, Walter on one hand having almost like no reactions because he keeps reminding them he's an android and he doesn't really care he doesn't really affect them but some of the human characters obviously having all kinds of different reactions Orem is trying to play it cool Rosenthal is kind of falling apart Uh, Lope is just uh, you know reacting in different manner and Daniel's just trying to you know continue to be strong through it even though she's not She's, you know, she's struggling with it. Uh, so it is an interesting, weird little experimental video, you know, and, and it keeps you wanting to know, well, why would uh, Wailing Yutani at this point be concerned about those kind of stresses? Now, remember, this is a colonizing mission, so maybe it's part of the psychological profile that they're looking for. Remember, there's a scene where McBride's character, Tennessee, uh, I think it was during the one of those testimonial videos that he says something about how uh, he's talking to his brother and it's like, you know, he doesn't know how he passed the test, you know, because uh, whatever, you know, his background check or something like that. So maybe, you know, it is a way of trying to figure out if the people are mentally stable that you're being, you know, you're putting on this mission because it is, it's a one-way trip as they explain later on. What's interesting also is the fact that we are dealing with Waylon Yutani now. Waylon has been dead for 10 years because he, you know, he gets his, 
head bashed in during uh, Prometheus. So Waylon has merged with Utani. So we do have a progression now of the company, the, the later to become Ebo company in a way. Now, the other video that we get, the other little digital short, if you will, it's called Advent. Now, this is the probably the best thing about this DVD in terms of extras that you're not expecting. What Advent is, it's almost like a David point of view recording of his memories of what has taken place in this planet and his recommendations to Wayland Yutani as to what to do next, to letting them know what he's planning on doing next. So he refers to this message as being an olive branch, so meaning that because he knows they're going to be upset at the fact that he has basically hijacked the ship by the time this movie is over. And he is not only responsible for, for the death of just about everybody, if you think about it, including an entire civilization of extraterrestrial beings that the company was trying to find in the first place. He refers to it as an olive branch because he kind of tells them about the possible capabilities of this research that he has done. You know, capabilities in the field of weapons and biochemical research and this and that. The type of thing that you figure a conglomerate like Wayland Yutani would be salivating over. But he kind of goes through the process of how, you know, in the planet, he started doing experiments with plants and low-level animals, you know, exposing them to these different type of things, and how those experiments, you know, he would, he would get somewhere with them. He was able to create these new kind of creatures, but never exactly the one he wanted them, the manner and, you know, the strength and the veracity that he wanted these creatures to be. He talks about how he basically destroyed the engineers because he hated them and, you know, the, the whole God complex that he has and the creator and the, and the master and the servant and that whole thing. And he hints at the fact that Shaw didn't want to kind of go along with him. And as a result of that, he killed her. And later on, he used her body to continue these experiments and that using human parts... Uh, because he gets to the point where he's using bits and pieces of her to create these other experiments, made his discoveries or made his creations go further. They have become more violent, more strong, you know, stronger, more agile, and they are kind of heading in that direction. There is a little bit of maybe contradictory statements in terms of when you read the book, you get the impression that the idea of the eggs kind of came from the engineers that there were eggs there before maybe those eggs were not the full-blown leathery gigantic eggs that we are used to seeing or the, the ones that david has in his special room in the movie but the the concept of having these creatures being born from eggs is something that it is mentioned in the past but in this testimonial video that he's kind of giving to Waylon Yutani, he kind of mentions the fact that he, he's been almost perfecting, you know, his technique to the point where he now has, you know, he's developed these eggs, you know, the delivery system, you know, the face hugger and the egg inside. So that is very interesting. And he does credit Shaw with that, you know, something about the human anatomy, something about the fact that it's a female human that he's using he's able to tap into the reproductory system and create these kind of creatures and he kind of you know goes on some of these rants about you know again this whole god complex that he has and he explains how you know he now has a ship full of potential subjects to continue his experiments and that daniels is going to be his queen which is something that is whoa wait a minute now uh, so he's now talking about not having to create the eggs. I think he's now talking about creating a creature that can actually deliver the eggs. So we're talking about alien queen here, you know, the aliens portion that we're talking about. So that is really, really interesting. And one of the things about it is that, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, why are they giving us such great information, you know, when normally you would want to keep quiet about this. Well, one of the problems or, or one of the reasons, one of the potential reasons why we're getting this information now is that this movie didn't do as well as they would have liked. Now, obviously, what they like is super mega blockbuster hits. This movie is making, made 
decent amount of money. It's going to make even more money in the video market. So it's going to make a decent amount of money. Around the time this movie was coming out, you know, Ridley Scott all of a sudden say, is saying he's going to do three more, he's going to do four more, he's going to do as many as, as we want because, you know, he's kind of comparing it to Star Wars in terms of franchising it and he wants to kind of open it up. So he's having his little <laughs> fantasy, I guess, of how crazy he's going to go with these movies. But around that same time, uh, and actually before Covenant came out, there was also a Neil Baumkamp treatment out there that Sigourney Weaver had even said she was going to be involved in having to do with creating a sequel to Aliens that kind of ignores you know from three forward and that was gathering speed but all of a sudden at the last minute they decided no we're going to go with Ridley Scott we're going to put you know Blomkamp on the shelf we're going to wait and see what happens and it looked as if they were kind of going to you know bet hard on Ridley Scott however because the movie didn't make as much money as it wanted to make like I said earlier I have a feeling they're going to be telling Scott, you know what, you're not going to get two or three sequels out of this. What we're going to do, and this is the the last, this is like the latest an announcement that I've heard from Fox, is that they're going to give him one more movie to kind of wrap this story up. In other words, he's got one more movie that was that's going to bring us from Covenant, from the end of Covenant, to the beginning of Alien. After that, they say they're going to reboot the whole franchise and move forward into the future with it so that there are stories that are going to be told that don't necessarily involve any of these characters at all, obviously, except other than the creature. So we'll see how that works out at the end. Scott seems to slightly reinforce that idea in one of the interviews he gives during the documentary here you know, for the making of the film where he talks about how the next film he thinks is going to follow you know, whatever happens to Daniels and David, you know, are they going to reach their destination? How are they going to deal with what's going on? Um, you know, I have my own theories because you got to realize that, and this is something that was mentioned before, you know, in, again, in, in some of these documentaries where they're taking a very long picture look at the story. With Prometheus, we got to learn about the engineers, so Alien had a couple of huge mysteries. The Alien was a mystery, the main mystery. But you also had this whole engineer race, which they weren't even called engineers. They were, it was the space jockey inside this bizarre looking ship. So with Prometheus, you kind of got to know who these space jockeys, engineers were and how influential they were from a DNA point of view, about our own creation. So we got to learn that. In this movie, we get to learn about the xenomorph, exactly how it was created. And by the time we get to this movie, you know, the xenomorph that we are used to seeing does pop out of, you know, one of the last characters to be killed, you know, as a result of a face-hugger-induced infestation. Because up to that point, you know, before Arm gets infected, before Loke gets infected, all the other infections were as a result of spores, which were, you know, indirectly a form of what the original black goo was. You know, in Prometheus, the black goo infects people directly by exposing them to that black goo. But that black goo turns those individuals into super violent individuals. It is... A little bit later in the film, when you start cross-breeding or cross-exposing with different DNA samples of creatures and the black goo, that you start to get these creatures that are super aggressive. They're not just walking time bombs. They're just aggressive creatures. You know, in Prometheus, you have, I believe it was like the worm uh, leads to the thing that gets five field and... <laughs> And gazpacho guy, if you guys remember. So, you know, that starts with the worm thing. Then you have a situation where Shaw's, you know, because of the... Again, this goes back to reproduction. Because of her reproductory system and her infection from her boyfriend gives birth to this thing that turns into a super aggressive kind of creature, but it's the form is not there. It's not the form we're used to. It has the aggressive tendencies. Then that creature does attack a engineer, and it attacks it in the manner of a face hugger, except it's a different creature. But it does use the face hugger kind of mechanism, the entry through the mouth, 
you know, creating something and putting some kind of seed in your stomach that then flourishes into another creature. And that creature that popped out at the end of Prometheus is a very alien-y looking xenomorphish kind of creature. Now, in this movie, you have the neomorphs, which kind of look like a little bit like the deacon, you know, the ones from the, from the end of uh, Prometheus, but the delivery system is a little different. The delivery system goes, you know, from what we learned that, you know, David devastates the entire planet, basically, or at least the entire continent or the entire area by releasing the black goo, which then infects everybody. Everybody dies. The black goo or the spores of that black goo then goes after insects, mammals, any kind of animal or plants out there and devastates them. And then when it has nothing left to devastate, anything left to convert to some kind of a creature, it then lies dormant. It kind of hibernates in some shape or form. And we do see in Covenant that the shape it hibernates in is in the form of a spore, almost like a little like a little mushroom that kind of hides these spores and gets triggered once you know it detects life around them. Uh, I think it's even mentioned at some point that the fact that, you know, David or even Mother could not detect any life because even those spores were being dormant at the time, so you couldn't detect them. But they're also talking about, I remember, about the fact that it's a, it's almost like nanotechnology. So it's not just biological, it's mechanical. And that goes back to Giger, you know, the Giger alien is a biomechanical <laughs> nightmare because it, it is combining biology in terms of animals and the reproductive system of the animals or different creatures but it also has a very intrinsic you know dna structure reprogramming of you know what actually makes those creatures the way they are and that's one of the things that makes it even more dangerous and it makes it super attractive i believe to Wayland yutani so what happens at this point is like i said before Wayland yutani now, at the end of this movie, based on this message that David sends out to them, he knows what's going on in terms of there's something out there. We lost a ship. We lost the Prometheus. We now lost the Covenant. But, you know, you could kind of picture that now they're in kind of a wait mode. And they're like, if we hear anything from any of our ships having to do with any kind of an alien creature or alien anything, we should really pay attention because that's probably what we want to get our hands on. This could be a potential gold mine if we are able to, <laughs> you know, grab this and turn it into a, some kind of a profitable weapon, you know, for the weapons division, if you remember aliens. So it is very interesting, you know, that we're at that point now. So by the end of these two films, we've told everybody what the space jockeys and the dreadnoughts you know the ship is all about the engineers by the end of the second film we know all about how we got to that point now we know that once we started combining this weird pathogen that has been weaponized by david's experiments you know this didn't just happen on its own on its own this would have been a self-destructive kind of virus that you know just like with five field and these other people that got infected they just go nuts they go insane it's a very effective weapon you know for the for for them it's also possible that the engineers had already experimented in that sort of thing and that's why some of the work that david has you know could have came from the engineers as it is as it is hinted on the book and that for whatever reason maybe they stopped and they say no more we can't experiment on this anymore it's out of control so they kind of take it back well david pushes forward but david introduces the almost like the missing ingredient the secret ingredient and that is human dna that makes it completely completely into the weapon that the alien creature the xenomorph we know is all about so at this point like i said we're at a point now where the next movie hopefully it'll get made I believe it's going to be called awakening will bring us to alien now where do we have to be when it comes to alien? That's a good question. Well, we know that they're an alien. You're going to have a dreadnought with a belly full of eggs and a dead engineer, most likely. I think it's a dead engineer. I don't think we never got a really good look inside that suit in the first film because the whole thing was crumbling. So for all we know, there could be a human inside that suit. I don't know. Could be David. Who the hell knows? I have no idea. But 
We are going to have to figure out what happens to David and Daniels. Most likely Daniels will not survive, or and most of the, I imagine, colonists will not survive. Something will happen between David where he will somehow fail in a way to achieve what he wants to achieve. The fact that there's so many eggs in Alien could suggest that a queen eventually will have been made by David, maybe even Daniels. We don't know what happened to that colony. You know, I don't know if they're going to acknowledge that colony. I don't know if survivors exist in that colony. I don't know if the colony is completely lost. I don't even know if they ever make it to the colony. Who knows? Maybe David is just going to go experiment crazy in the ship. And even before they reach the colony, who knows? The other question then becomes, well, where the heck does that dreadnought come from? Well, is it possible that other engineers, maybe that were in other planets, come back to check on this planet and realize what happened? And that the fact that <laughs> maybe David, you know, from a human planet, an AI from a human planet was responsible for their, you know, for the extermination of their entire planet. It's possible. Uh, we also have to remember that Walter, theoretically, might still be alive in this planet that they're on right now. So that's another possibility. You know, that planet had other dreadnoughts, so it is possible that Walter might be able to get on a dreadnought and fly out there, see if he could kind of catch up to them, kind of like what Shaw did. That's a possibility too. You know, that would introduce the idea of where's another dreadnought. Now, the belly full of eggs, you know, that could be David's uh, hijinks. Who knows? So I think the purpose of this story of the third film if we ever get it is going to be just a link the third film is how do we link these two concepts together how do we bridge those two apart we've already explained a lot about the engineers we've already explained a lot about the xenomorph but now at this point you gotta unite those two things you know with alien so that is a a, a huge possibility of where we're going next the film, not only this film, but what we find out about the previous film in a way, they are kind of downers the way they end to the point where, you know, one of my biggest objections to Alien 3 was the fact that they opened the film by destroying all the characters you kind of love from Aliens. And to me, that, that just kills it for me. It kills it because it destroy. I, I could not enjoy that film anymore because it's, the, it's almost like a director taking a sledgehammer to this beautiful crystal palace you created and then destroying it and saying here i'm going to destroy this and i'm going to tell you another story now it's like no no you can't do that well for some reason i don't mind that much in these films the fact that shaw i mean i'm not happy about it but the fact that shaw is dead i kind of understand it to progress the story because you can't have really survivors on a story that it's all based on mystery you know, if you're building, if you're going backwards, you know, odds are some of these guys are not going to make it. But, you know, this particular film also ends in that manner. Now, what's really interesting is the fact that, and again, this is probably Ridley trying to be a little more brutal with the audience. Because the novel ends with David, who's pretending to be Walter at the end, you know, puts everybody to sleep, puts Tennessee to sleep, puts Daniels to sleep, but doesn't hint at all to her as to what he is, as opposed to in the movie where she kind of understands by asking her about, you know, the cabin. And also she's kind of like, oh my God, you know, and then and then she falls asleep. So she's like, oh my God, she just ruined her, <laughs> her dreams, basically. But in the book, it also ended that way too, where he doesn't tell her anything. But then the fact that he walks over to where the uh, sleeping uh, crew... Uh, passengers are and those embryos you know that area with all those embryos and he kind of places or checks on a couple of his little face hugger embryos he doesn't necessarily regurgitate them at that time again that's something i think they either reshot or added later and then sends the message you know he sends a message to Wayland yutani not as detailed obviously what we get here but a message telling him that, oh, we had some problems and, you know, we're going to keep going and blah, 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 and this and that. But in the book, the message is a little more explicit. And that is the gigantic, you know, shocking ending for the book. In the movie, we get a little earlier with Daniel's reaction. So 
I'm personally looking forward to. I want to see the continuation of the story. I know it's not a perfect movie. You know, I get it. But some of these actors are so damn good. I mean, Fassbender is just great. The way that he plays those two characters. And, you know, I did read in one of the books that says that he kind of played it like a serial killer. He has to play David straight, straight, straight. And he has his own agenda, and he's going to be continually, you know, straight about it. Same thing with Walter. Walter is the opposite, you know, but he has to also, you know, adhere to those rules of how to play that character. So, once we have more news on the next possible film, we will let you guys know. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. On today's collectible segment, we are going to once again talk about posters, movie posters. And as I mentioned a while back, I've started displaying my old collection of movie posters and even some new ones that I've recently gotten. And today I'm going to talk about two different ones. One of them is John Carpenter's The Thing, classic movie poster. Very simple in a way looking poster and very mysterious because if you are familiar with the poster, you see the shape of a man, most likely, in, in what appears to be Arctic gear, standing in what appears to possibly be snow or ice. But the face, you cannot see the face. It is a kind of like a ray of light that's shining through the face that kind of does not allow you to see what's happening in there. You do see the outline of what could be a parka or one of those... Uh, those snow hats, you know, the, the hoods that you kind of flip over your head, you know, and snow gear. But the face is completely obstructed by this light that's just shining through. And all through the poster itself, you do get all these what appears to be reflections of ice and snow. And it's very blue and black and white. Classic posters, I'm sure you've seen it a million times. The history of the poster itself, it's a little, a little bizarre in a way because... Now, I understand that the movie was shot with as much secrecy as possible because they didn't want to reveal anything about it. And recently I watched the Shout Factory version, latest version of The Thing, remastered, extra new commentaries, extra new, you know, bonus material here and there. And yeah, from what I understand, you know, from what I've been reading, first of all, the poster was drawn by Drew Struzan, who is a amazing prolific artist when it comes to movie posters again he's one of these guys like i mentioned last time that there are like it's like the john williams of movie posters you know what i mean it's these names that keep coming back and back and back especially you know when the art of movie poster was more popular than i guess it is now but the story behind this particular poster is a very uh, unusual little story because from what i understand he was called struzan he you know he got a phone call from universal saying hey we got this movie and we actually need a we need a fully finished poster by tomorrow and he was like well what's the movie well it's it's called the thing we're remaking the things john carpenter the director is like oh okay well the problem is that we can't really show you any material from it we don't have anything we can show you now whether they couldn't show it to him because they didn't physically have anything or because they were trying to keep it secret, I'm not sure. The bottom line is that Struzan was not supplied with anything. So the way that they described the movie to him was like, well, you know, do you remember the original, you know, the thing from another world? And he was like, yeah, I remember that film. He's like, okay, well, kind of go, go off on that. Give us something that has something to do with that film. Use that as your guide to what the poster should look like. So from what, again, from what I've read... He started coming up with a concept and he had his, his wife take a Polaroid picture of him, you know, wearing a very wintry parka and, and in that pose where, you know, both hands to the side and his legs to the side and kind of coming towards the camera, you know, be a very threatening uh, manner. And he used, you know, he was basically his own reference. 
And obviously he didn't use his face because the poster does not let you see the face. But that's what he used. And as he's coming up with this concept, he then has a couple more pictures taking, this time 35 millimeter pictures, and his wife is able to develop them right away and you know use them and you know to help him put it together. And he is able to, I believe, fax over you know a very rough concept of what he has in mind. And they said, okay, do it. We need it first thing in the morning. So apparently he's there painting away the entire day, the entire night, and by nine in the morning, he gets uh, a universal guy who shows up <laughs> to kind of pick up the poster, and uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but he kind of jokes about that, you know, the paint was still a little wet by the time the guy got the poster. And apparently they used it, and they have it, and uh, up to this day, you know, it is one of the you know, most iconic, you know, prints for a poster. It's been redone a number of times. Different companies have done their own take on it. You know, with, with Struzan's approval, he's been able to uh, uh, have these things reprinted. You know, that whole Mondo company that they do these vintage retro kind of posters, they've done different versions of them. There's a million pieces of poster art. You know, a lot of it fan-made or artists made, not necessarily linked directly to the original release of the film. But, like I said, it is a super, super iconic poster. Also, with this that I mentioned before, this Shout Factory re-release of the film, I would also say, you know, pick this up if you're a fan of the thing. Um, the, the, the DVD itself has a whole bunch of cool little interviews and uh, commentaries and one specific one with Dean Cundy where he talks about one possible hint of who could the person that first gets infected in the film you know there's this whole thing about the uh, the dog that you see this shape this shadow on the wall the dog is visiting people's rooms in the beginning and that first person could be the first infected one and at the time of shooting the film, they purposely did not use any of the actors as the shadow because they didn't want anybody to know who it was. They mentioned that they used a stuntman, the guy who doubles for Kurt Russell, who had also doubled as the shape in uh, Halloween 2. So this is a guy who's used to doing stunt work, and they purposely used his likeness to kind of throw everyone off. Now, there are theories that have been going around that that first guy is Palmer in the movie. And in a way, it could make sense that it's a very good theory, because one of the things Cundy said was that when they're doing the blood test, they threw in a quick little hint as to who the person who is you know taking the blood test is infected before that person gets revealed and the way they did it is that every time you see a close-up of the person's face and you know it's very tense and it's very you know nerve-wracking scene everybody's nervous because they don't know if they're the one and he says that if you look closely every person that is human at that point at least has a gleam in their eye. You can actually see a light being reflected off their eye, a little white glint, you know, in the eye. But Palmer is the only one, when you look at him, there's no glint, it's completely black. Now, that's good and it works because in that scene, it happens that way. And you could kind of say, well, maybe the shape in that room before could have been Palmer. I mean, I don't know how early he was infected. You know, one day I'm going to have to do a, a breakdown or at least a theoretical chart of who got infected when based on fan theories. Because Carpenter is never going to tell us. He's just not going to do it. So, you know, he purposely does not want to tell you. Even at the, at the end of the movie, there's all kinds of theories. You know, is it is it Kurt Russell or is it uh, Keith David or David Keith? I can never get his name and there is one theory also going around that if you notice the breath, when Russell talks at the end, you could see his breath. You know, you visually see it because of the cold. But when Childs talks, you don't see the breath. So is that a hint that Childs is the creature and Kurt Russell is not? Then there's another theory going around that because Russell doesn't drink from the bottle, that could be hinting at the fact that he might be the creature. Which, again, that really doesn't have you know but none of that is proved and the other thing that they do mention in one of the documentaries and this is nothing new because it's been mentioned before is that when the movie was being tested uh you know focus group shown you know preview they had 
just in case, I believe the editor of the film, he kind of gave John Carpenter the idea of why don't you shoot an additional ending just in case. And the additional ending would have been what you see now of those two guys at the end. And, you know, the whole place is going up in flames and they're just sitting there having their drink. And then you at certain points, I guess you dissolve or you cut to McGreedy being at a rescue place, maybe another station, maybe some kind of rescue place where he's being given the blood test and he's passing it. This way you are assured that your lead good guy is not the thing. But that apparently was never used. They got to the point where they, John Carpenter was able to stick to his guns and keep his original ending, leaving everything, you know, in a dark, dark place <laughs> on purpose. But it's cool because this is the type of movie that, like I said before, you could. I, every time I watch it, it's it's like a murder mystery. It's like I'm watching Columbo. You're always trying to figure it out. You know what's going to happen at the end, which is kind of like a Columbo episode, if you know, if you think about it. Sometimes it's not about the murder; it's about the steps that led to the murder. Well, here you know what's going to happen at the end, but the only mysterious part of the movie that you're still always trying to figure out is. When are people the thing, and when are they not the thing? So yeah, that's going to be one, I guess, for the future that I'm going to have to tackle sooner or later. But again, if you're into collecting, here's another great item, the poster. You can find these now. They make reproductions of these posters. They're not exactly, exactly, you know, to the size that you might want them in terms of the, the original one-sheet sizes, but they do have so many multiple sizes, you can have them super big or super small at super reasonable prices. And for me, you know, again, believe me, I love vintage stuff. I have a ton of vintage posters, but I'm not in any shape or form right now to start paying hundreds of dollars to get my hands on a vintage whatever. So, some of these reproduced posters, the quality is amazing, super sharp. The colors are just excellent. And, you know, they, they get the job done. You get to live that movie for, you know, in my case, for a few weeks while I'm working here in the office and you get to see them. Now, for my second poster of the month, I'm hitting The Empire Strikes Back. This is that second poster I have on display right now. And this is an original one. This is one of the original ones I used to have. Bought it back in probably uh, 1981 or 1982. This particular poster, in terms of which one I'm talking about, it's called the re-release poster, the July 31st, 1981 re-release. This is the first time the film was re-released, you know, as opposed to the original release back in 1980. This particular poster is done by Tom Jung. Now, Tom Jung is a name that's familiar to Star Wars poster collectors because he did the original Star Wars poster. The original Star Wars poster has a weird little history in terms of the classic painting. There are two posters that look almost identical to each other. One is by Tom Jung and the other one is by the Hildebrand brothers. They look very similar. They have the same pose because those were the instructions they were given. But the Tom Jung poster was the first one, the Star Wars one. And then they said, all right, you know what? This is a little too dark. They went to the Hildebrand and said, you know, can you do a different version, a little more brighter, colorful version of it? And they kind of came up with almost the same thing. So what they ended up doing was they used the original Jung one as the classic Star Wars release poster for the U.S. And then they ended up using the Hildebrand version for other stuff, such as, I believe, some of the UK, you know, posters and that sort of thing. You know, that art never goes to waste. They always end up using it one way or the other. But what I'm dealing with right now is The Empire Strikes Back. They, you know, once again, they asked, uh, you know, some of these uh, artists to return to, you know, come up with new concepts for the posters. Now, the original Empire Strikes Back is is also uh, known as the Gone with the Wind poster by a completely different artist. It's the same guy, apparently, that did the Jaws poster, another heavy hitter in the poster industry. And this is the Gone with the Wind one because, you know, you have Han and Leia in that Gone with the Wind pose between him and her, and you have Luke, you know, in top of the Tauntaun and Vader hovering in the background, a lot of ice and snow around it. That's the classic, classic Empire poster, the one that came out when you first probably saw the film. This is a time where they would re-release films when they were blockbusters. They would re-release them the following year or Christmas or something like that. Limited engagements. And, you know, Star Wars did it a, quite a number of times. And Empire did it too. And for the first re-release, what they did is they came up with this poster by 
Tom Jung. The poster is very different looking than the than the classic one. It's cool because it does have a majority of the actors on the poster. And this is something very important because when you re-release a film, you're no longer worried about surprises in terms of, oh, we can't reveal this character, we can't reveal that character, which is something that happens sometimes. And in the original Empire poster, you know, you had a number of characters missing from that first poster. There was no Yoda, there was no Lando, for example. So that's something that was added a little later, you know, to complete the poster to make it a little more accurate. But by the time you reach these re-releases, they're using now different posters, different artists, and they're able to put all these characters, you know, on the poster face. The drawings are, you know, the art is a little different. It's, it's a, I don't want to call it monochrome, but it does, it is not realistic coloring. Everything has a shade of kind of red and purple and orange around it. You have Vader looming over everything with this huge light that's kind of shining above his shoulder. You have Luke as the primary character and Yoda next to him. You have the three adats in the bottom. Over to one side, you have uh, Lando. You know, again, they're not concerned about hiding any characters. And on the other side, you have Han and Leia. You know, Han is... It's funny because Han is almost doing the, uh, the, the, the New Hope pose, you know, with him kind of hunched down with the gun sticking up. And Leia's kind of looking up. It's a very, like, damsel in distress type of pose. And you do have in the background a couple of uh, snow speeders kind of flying around. So that's kind of cool. And and in a way, you know, you do have these characters almost in, in important order and important size. You know, Vader is looming over everyone. Luke is the main actor, I guess, because he's the main character. And then Han, Leia, and Lando are all kind of equal size. Now, like I said, the one I have is the original re-release. I had, unfortunately, in order to make it fit in when I used to display it back when I first bought it, I had cut out the white border around it so it would fit these panels I had. So, unfortunately, I did <laughs> ruin it somewhat by removing the white border around the poster, which I'm sure, you know, if you're a, if you're into reselling them, that, that is something that kind of destroys your price. But I really don't care because it's for me. You know, it doesn't bother me. I have it here. It looks gorgeous. I love it. Now, what's interesting about this poster is that when they did the 1982 re-release, they almost used exactly the same art. But they did kind of change some things around. Instead of the art being, let's say, about half the poster... For the 82, the art becomes almost three quarters of the poster. The title of the movie shoots up to the top of the poster instead of being underneath the adats. So now you do have more art space in a way. You still have Vader up there, you know, holding his fingers, you know, whatever he's doing. You still have Luke, you know, big head. Yoda's head is a little smaller now. It kind of matches Lando and it kind of matches Leia. And Han, for some reason, for this re-release, we now see a half shot of him. You know, his head is the same as Lando and Leia, but we now see his entire chest up to his waist. So for some reason, they decided to make Han, a, for poster reasons, a more important character. You know, in a way, he's kind of being billed, I guess, as a third important character. Vader is, is there looming over everyone. Luke's head is still kind of big. But now Han is kind of positioning himself outside of the regular sizes of those other characters. So it is kind of unusual how they, you know, the following year, they use those characters. Now, one possibility is that the year is 1982 at this point for this poster, and Harrison Ford is coming off of Raiders of the Lost Ark and possibly Blade Runner. So it is conceivable that people are trying to capitalize on his, you know, hit, you know, especially with Raiders. Uh, you know, he's a big time player, you know, now as far as Hollywood is concerned. So maybe that's what they were trying to do. Now, what's interesting also is that even though it is another, like I said, it's another junk poster. And I wonder, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if maybe that this was just another concept he came up with originally and then they saved it or he actually tweaked it. But they are kind of following that same color palette, that that purple, red, orange, you know, whitish kind of color palette, but it seems like they added so much more color to it. The one that I have, they're very passive colors. They're very calm colors. This is more dark. It is darker, and it is, 
angrier colors, if you will. They're more deep, deep, deep reds and deep oranges. Very different shades of dark and deep orange and red and purples. So the poster does look different. Like I said, it is probably one of my oldest original Star Wars posters. I do have an actual Star Wars re-release that I will talk about eventually. But... As far as Empire goes, this is it for me. This is the only one that's vintage that I own. You know, hopefully one day I will own a few more, even if they are reprints, because like I mentioned before, the reprint quality is just fantastic. It's just fantastic. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoy today's show. We are going to, as usual, continue covering the Alien franchise in whatever direction it goes. We hope it goes in the direction that, you know, I'm leaning towards, which that is let Ridley Scott complete his films or film. But, you know, it would appear to be maybe there's only one more left for him to do. I'm not opposed to having other filmmakers try out other different things. I really was curious and looking forward to the possibility of Neil Baumkamp doing, you know, a post-Aliens continuation, which that's right up my alley. (laughs) Anything that kind of destroys and negates, you know, Alien 3 especially, I'm all for. But we'll see because, again, everything depends on whatever money the previous film makes. And as I've mentioned before the studio looks like they want to try something completely different after scott is done doing his thing and i hope you also enjoyed our poster segment you know it's really fun doing these poster segments because you know for a few weeks i get to stare at these posters and you know it kind of brings back so many memories of of not only seeing the film but in some of these cases we have them on dvd and we rewatch them so many times and sometimes we find new things about it and you know new interviews get shot and come out where all of a sudden new revelations come up about certain things that we were wondering about. But it's really uh, cool to have them. And, you know, if you're into that sort of collecting, you know, between the authentic vintage versions of these posters and the recreations, the reproductions, they are fantastic, these reproductions. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy that. So on behalf of everybody here at the show, thank you for listening, and we will see you here next time at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. One hundred thousand years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now, the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. And man... It isn't Benning! ...is the warmest place to hide. like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. <laughs>is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.